We are in Hebrews chapter 11. As we've been studying through the book of Hebrews, we've taken a long pause at chapter 11 here, going through the Hall of Fame of Faith, outlining the people who are in there and trying to identify the faith that got them in there. Amen? And so we're in Hebrews 11, and I'm just going to read you one more name for this week as we're, <laughs> we're here talking about the period of Judges, and God included uh, four people from the period of Judges in the Hall of Fame of Faith. It says here in Hebrews 11, verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, who we talked about, Barak, who we're going to talk about today, Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and all the prophets. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to do all the prophets. But we are going to talk about Barak tonight. And we said that this was a person from the period of the judges. And I said, you know, these are judges, but Barak is not actually a judge. We forget this. I forget this sometimes. Deborah was the judge in that period, and Barak was her teammate. And we're going to see how God uh, uses a duo this time. Batman and Robin were the... Thank you, somebody. So we got a dynamic duo in the Word of God, and let's just thank God for our study tonight for Hebrews and for Barak. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the Word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you make it come alive to us tonight. Lord, that off these pages here would leap the truth of what you're trying to show your people today, the things that landed these men in the, and women in the Hall of Fame of Faith are things that we need to put and pattern into our own lives. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to do that tonight in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. So we're in the period of the judges here. We got Gideon. We talked about him last time. If you weren't here for that, please get that study. It's a powerful study how God used Gideon, uh, a man who didn't see himself as a warrior, but his name means great warrior. And God called him a warrior and he had to accept what God said about him rather than what he thought about himself. So whatever you think about yourself tonight, uh, don't count it for much, but count what God says about you, amen? There are often times in life we think too much of ourselves, and then there are other times in life we think too little of ourselves. So it's always best to trust what God says about us. Gideon was amazing. Barak is another amazing example, not actually a judge. Maybe some people call him co-judge, but really Deborah was the judge, he is in this period of history in Israel where God needed to raise up judges. Now, remember, at this time in Israel, it was a leaderless period. That means there was no leadership. There was no spiritual oversight. And the theme of the book of Judges was found in Judges 17.6. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. As much as we look at leadership in different venues, whether it be in the church or government, we see there's a lot of flaws in human leadership, amen? In fact, you know, we see flaws in the church and leaders. We see flaws in the world. We see flaws in the workplace and leadership. Maybe we've been in leadership and we've had flaws in us, amen? So a leadership, a leaderless period might sound like bliss to some people. There are some people who are anarchists, and they think if we could just get rid of everybody who wants to tell us what to do, life would be great. 
And it wouldn't. It would be like the period of the Vikings. People would pillage and plunder and steal and kill. I mean, leaderlessness is a dangerous thing. And so in Israel's history, there's no leadership. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a mess. This attitude produced a really negative spiritual cycle in Israel's history. It was this critical downward spiral of sin. And it looks like this. The people would sin. And then God would call on them to repent. They would refuse to repent. So God would allow their enemies to bring them into bondage. In bondage, they would cry out to God. God would send a judge to deliver them. They would come out of bondage and serve God for a season only to go back to sin and into bondage again. And the pattern repeated itself over and over at least 15 times in this period uh, of Israel's history. Now, judges were not robed magistrates who decided legal matters among the people. Judges in the book of Judges in the kingdom of God were instruments of deliverance. They were sent by God to bring his people out of the bondage of sin back into right relationship with him. Amen. This is what God wants from us. He wants us to leave sin alone, to not touch the unclean thing, and to be in right relationship with him. Well, you're really quiet Wednesday night. You see, we can't be fully committed to sin and fully committed to God. We can't be half in the world and half in the kingdom of God. It's all or nothing with God. In fact, 99% is an insult to God because he's worth so much more than that. He's worth our everything, and when we give our everything, it's still nothing compared to what he's given us in grace. So this period of judges, these are instruments of God's deliverance. And uh, there were 15 judges in succession in that period. Barak's role in that period of, uh, comes under the judgeship of Deborah. She is the fourth judge out of the 15. She's the only woman judge, and she co-led with Barak. And we're going to see how God used them together in concert. Now, let's look at what landed Barak in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now, notice this guy's name is not Barak. Okay, don't call him Barak. He doesn't like that. It's Barak. I knew a guy who was named after Barak in the Bible, and everyone called him Barak. He was always grumpy. So it's Barak, and Barak is this guy that God wants to use here. Now, everything that you need to know about uh, this dynamic duel in the faith here is in Judges chapter 4. In fact, why don't you turn to Judges chapter 4 and... uh, I'm going to surprise Sister Kim and have her read it to you. Sister Kim, you can read it out of my Bible. It's holy and anointed. It will flow smoothly. (laughs) So Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to the end. I believe it's 24 verses. Uh, Just read it right up to the end there. Judges chapter 4. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheph Hagoyim. That's why you wanted me to read it. Yeah, that was good. Hagoyim, <laughs> did you hear that? She did a nice Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel seven, severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. 
Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanamin, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river of Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be, if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here, that you shall say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. And so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Cool story. <clears throat> so here we are. Israel's in trouble again. They've sinned. They've estranged themselves for God, from God. We can relate to that. When we sin, it feels like there's a wall between us and God. They're in this period here where now, you know, they are persecuted. And they talk about bondage. And bondage really is slavery. And 
there's nothing good about slavery. Slavery is ugly from any angle that you look at it. They were taken captive by a heathen nation, and they were oppressed. Now, you can't tell the story of Barak without talking about Deborah, because God used them in concert together. Um, God's people had enjoyed 80-plus years of rest and deliverance from Judge Ehud and Shamgar. So for 80 years after their last fall into sin and bondage, they were delivered, and for 80 years they enjoyed fellowship with God. But they go back, they forsake God, and God uses a pagan Canaanite king whose name was Jabin. In verse 2, it tells us about Jabin here, and Jabin was used as an instrument to punish God's people. Understand something. God doesn't need to send lightning bolts and throw rocks and let boulders come down from heaven when you and I mess up. He just removes his favor from us and our enemies overtake us. God has always used the enemies of his people to afflict and judge his people to bring them back to him. Notice how God uses the kingdom of darkness. Notice how he even uses the devil as a pawn to, to effectuate what he's trying to do in the lives of his people. It's not like the devil and God. The, the devil's way down there, amen? He's just a pawn in the hand of God. Jabin would have had no authority and no ability to afflict God's people unless they had sinned. Sin opens our armor and makes a breach in our armor for the enemy to just take advantage of us. So here's Jabin, and he's used by God as an instrument to afflict and punish God's wayward people. Now, something about Jabin that is significant in this situation is in verse 3, he has 900 iron chariots. That's a big deal in that time, amen? That would be like having 900 Abrams tanks. If you got 900 Abrams tanks, you're the toughest guy on your block. Okay, some of you are looking at me like I'm speaking Yiddish. You know what a tank is, right? So this was the equivalent of a tank in that day. He has 900 of them, heavy armor. Uh, because he had all this armament, because he had this powerful military, he was the regional military superpower, and he was afflicting God's people. So they had no armor, they had no weapons, they had nothing, and this guy has 900 chariots. Now, Jabin subdues the children of Israel for 20 long, bitter years, 20 long years of iron-handed oppression, and it takes them 20 years to cry out to God loud enough to get God's attention. I don't know about you, but I like to cry out to God quickly. Anybody think 20 years is, well, you know, let's see how long we can put up with this here. It's not too bad. You know, food's pretty good. 20 years, really? We stay in sin. We stay in bondage. We stay afflicted for much too long. When if we cry out to now I'm not talking about cry out to God like, oh, I wish, you know, I wish. There was. No, cry out to God, amen. It took them 20 years to build up enough repentance, enough brokenness, enough remorse to cry out to God in a way that they got his attention. So they get God's attention, and they're afflicted, and they're oppressed, and they cry out to God. And in verse 4 and 5, God raises up Deborah for them as a judge. Now, Deborah is the only female judge used in this period. She was a prophetess, 
to start out with. So realize she's a prophetess. She speaks the word of the Lord. She is then raised up by God as a judge. So she has uh, multi-roles here. She's uh, an incredible woman of God. She has great faith, we're going to see. She has incredible self-control. She's humble, and she has integrity. You know, regardless of the gender sometimes, God's just looking for somebody with integrity. God's looking for somebody who's humble, amen? Well, you know, I'm the biggest and the strongest. Well, you know, because you're talking about that, God can't use you. Sometimes God uses the weakest. Look at Gideon, so shy, hiding, didn't think much of himself. So Deborah's this incredible woman of God. She's a prophetess. She's already speaks the word of the Lord. She has great faith and integrity and everything that God needs, and he raises her up to deliver Israel from Jabin. Now, verse 6 and 7 reveal a very powerful pairing here. If you're following along in Judges chapter 4, which I encourage you to do just for continuity's sake, verses 6 through 7, it's the powerful pairing here. And it's not just, you know, that the prophetess Judge Deborah, uh, you know, tells Barak the warrior, you know, to, uh, you know, get your army together, we're going to war. No, God paired them up here. And I want you to see this. You have the, the very strong spiritual component of Deborah, the prophetess, and the judge with the very capable warrior, Barak. So God takes the spiritual warrior and the literal physical warrior, and he couples them together as a team. Okay, there's a lesson in here for us. This is a pattern. This is suggesting something to us. When God puts Deborah and Barak together as a team to deliver Israel from the Canaanites, the, the pairing of the spiritual warrior and the natural warrior leads them to victory. Now, spiritual battles are not won in the flesh. You're in spiritual trouble. You're in sin. You don't fight your way out of that with your fists, okay? But there are some times when we're in a spiritual battle that we face a physical enemy and we need the physical component to face the physical enemy. How many would agree that the Nazis were evil? Yet we, couldn't, we could have sat around all day and prayed against the Nazis, but we actually had to fight them. There is a physical fight connected to the spiritual victory. And I want you to get this. There's sometimes we have to stand and fight. We just did a whole segment on the armor of God. Hopefully you know how to use the armor. You know what each part is for. You use it in concert together. But those spiritual fights, sometimes those spiritual fights require things done in the natural realm, amen, uh, leaving certain situations, maybe quitting a job, maybe staying away from certain people, maybe literally standing up to certain people and saying enough, setting boundaries, come on. And God wants us to understand that the spiritual and the natural work together in concert, and there are some battles that we'll never win without using both of those things. So, the battle buzz does belong to the Lord. Look what he says in verse 7. I will draw out to you Sisera. That's the, the enemy general there who has these 900 chariots. He works for Jabin. I will give him into your hand. So as much as they had a fight, they needed Barak. As much as they needed to do spiritual warfare, they needed Deborah. In the end, the battle was the Lord's. And these are the principles I want you to get. We've got to stand and fight. We've got to put the armor on. We need the spiritual component, or there'll never be victory without it. You don't win battles in the flesh. But in the end, the battle's not mine. The battle's not yours. It's not the church's. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
Who's fighting your battles today? Are you fighting them? You're never going to win. How are you fighting your battles today? You fighting them in the flesh? You're going to stay in bondage. Let the Lord fight your battles, amen? Don't get involved in the flesh. Don't get, oh, well, I'll just tell them. I'll let them have it. I'll show them. I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll lump them up good. That's never going to do anything. But just increase your rap sheet. You know, you don't want to make that longer. So understand the components here, the spiritual component, the physical component, but the battle is the Lord. Now, verse 8 of chapter 4 is loaded with implications here uh, as God is saying some powerful things, as he always does. It says, then Barak said to her, okay, so Deborah calls on him, you know, you're going to go fight to Sarah. You would think, okay, it's just, you know, a spiritual leader calling up a general. But Barak says, no. Barak says to her, I will go. He says, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Isn't that kind of an interesting response here? You know, he's a warrior. There's a fight. Most high-level warriors, if there's a fight, they don't care who sends them. If they can go, they'll go, amen. They want to be in the fight. Barak says to the prophetess, Barak says to the judge, if you don't go, I'm not going. Now, what's, what's that all about? You know, he's, he's being commissioned here. Um, should, he, should he really challenge Deborah that way? What's going on? You know, there are a few possibilities of why Barak won't go unless Deborah goes with him. The first is that he's a coward, and he's unmotivated, and he's like Ahab. You know, Ahab didn't want to do anything for himself. He sent Jezebel to fight his battles. Wherever there's a Jezebel, there's an Ahab. You all look stunned tonight, amen? You know, oh, Jezebel, bad lady, bad lady. Jezebel was a bad lady, but Ahab enabled her. Ahab hid behind Jezebel. Ahab was the type of guy who hears a noise in the night and pushes his wife down the stairs. Honey, go look. I heard a noise. So was Barak unwilling to do the nitty-gritty dirty work here? Was he a coward? Was he like Ahab? Not likely. Choice B, uh, Barak didn't fully trust Deborah. Oh, yeah, you heard from the Lord. Yeah, uh, yeah, you got the word of the Lord. Well, you know what? If you really heard from the Lord, why don't you come with me so at least you got some skin in the game? Come on, anybody ever like that? People can sit around all day and dream up things for me to do. But, hey, sometimes you do it or you get out in front or you, you, know, you, want, you want to start this program. Or do you spearheaded. Hello, you don't look excited now. You just canceled your appointment to see Pastor Rick. But Barak's maybe like, you know, hey, prophetess, hey, lady who hears from God, you want me to bring a small army against a big army? I want you there with me so you got some skin in the game. Was that his motivation? Maybe. It's hard to say. Or choice C, Barak valued Deborah. He valued her spiritual discernment and her prophetic insight, and he wanted access to that in real time on the battlefield. You see, this is why I believe Barak wanted to bring Deborah along with him. A warrior doesn't want to bring non-warriors into battle with him. It doesn't make sense. But he respected her, and he knew she did hear from God, and he knew if something would come undone or begin to unravel, he could call upon her for prophetic insight in real time right in the middle of the battle. And he's like, Deborah, I want to fight this fight. I want to serve the Lord, but I want you right next to me. See, this shows Barak's great faith in God. Because if he was just a meathead warrior, if he was just a special operations guy, he would say, I don't need you with me. I'm, you know, G.I. Jane, stay home. I'm going to go take care of this, and I'm going to fight the battle, and I'm going to win it big time, okay? 
but he didn't have that attitude. God looked at him, and he's a humble guy. Even though he's a mighty warrior, he wants the prophetess with him. And in verse 9, Deborah shows how gutsy she is when she doesn't hesitate at all. And she says, I'll go. Absolutely, I'll be there. I'll be with you in the battle. No problem. But then she tells him bluntly, you're not going to be the hero in this campaign. Now, this is where more of a faith element is going to fall in for Barak. She says, surely I will go with you in verse 9. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So, you know, Deborah is very gutsy here. She commits to go to battle. She's not a warrior. She puts herself in harm's way. And then she, you know, she basically tells him, look, you're going to go fight the fight, but you're not getting the glory. How do you think a warrior would like that? Any warriors out there? All Pee Wee Hermans? Hello? You're going to go fight the fight, but you're not getting any of the glory. This is counterintuitive to, to the mindset of a warrior. But it shows a few things about Deborah's character and about Barak's character. Number one, it shows this about Deborah's character. She had confidence. And confidence is a powerful thing, especially in times of crisis. Israel's in bondage. They're in crisis. This guy's got 900 chariots. He's going to crush our little untrained small force. But Deborah has confidence. She has confidence in God. And that's the number one thing that we need to have if we're going to be Christian leaders, if we're going to be good, godly people. We've got to have confidence not in our flesh, not in our denomination, not in our abilities, not in our diplomas. We've got to have confidence in God. Without confidence in God, we can't get anything done in the kingdom. She has confidence in God. She has confidence in her ability to hear God. If there was any element where Barak wanted to put her to the test, she's like, I'm ready for the test. I know I hear God. I know I'm anointed as a prophetess. I know I'm ready for the battle. She has confidence in her ability to hear God, and she also has confidence in her calling. This is important. Whatever we're called to do, first we have to realize it, then we have to be trained and developed in it, and then we have to have confidence in what God has called us to do. I got to tell you, I don't cry in my office before it's time to come out to preach. Scott, I'm not back there crying, oh, I hope I say the right one. No, at this point, after doing this for, I mean, since I was 14, I'm confident that the Lord could even speak through me. It's hilarious, I know, but it happens a couple times a week. So when you do what you're called to do and you watch God develop you and use you in that area, you have confidence, and she did, and that's a good thing, and it says a lot about her character. It also shows that Deborah had integrity, and I want to point this out here. It's very important. She has integrity because she was honest and upfront with Barak. She told him, look, Barak, you're going to fight the fight. I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the glory in this battle. Now, if she wasn't a godly woman, if she was a Jezebel, she would have tried to manipulate Barak. Ladies, don't try and manipulate men. Wives, don't try and manipulate your husband. Manipulation is like witchcraft. It's not funny. Well, he's a big, stupid animal. I can trick him into doing what I want him to do. Okay, Delilah. You see... God made man the head. He's not to be manipulated. 
you to come alongside of him and serve him and together find the will of God and execute it for your lives. This woman has integrity. What, you see, why do you say this, Pastor Rick? Because listen, if she was scared for the fact that he wouldn't do it if he didn't get the glory, she would have tried to say, oh, we'll see how it works out or, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun, you know, you get, you get to do some army stuff. Nope, she's right up front with him. You're not getting the glory for this, buddy. I'm coming, but this is the way it's going to roll. I love that about her, that she just, you know, she doesn't try and manipulate. She doesn't try and entice him. She doesn't try and work things out for her own good or for her own purposes. She executes the will of God. Great integrity. The third thing this shows about character here is it shows something about Barack, Barak's character. I blew it. I blew it there, Kim. Did you hear that? He's mad at me now. When I get to heaven, he's going to hit me when I get through the gates. Barak had humility, and this is, this is a rare level of humility for a warrior. Barak was willing to risk life and limb with no hope of honor or glory for himself. Now, for the warrior, honor and glory in battle is everything. But for Barak, it was not more important to him than pleasing God and serving his nation. And that's great humility. This alone here catches the attention of God. Why? Because he's willing to work in a team here. He's willing to put his own desires down the pipe and say, you know what, I'm just going to serve God, and I'm going I'm to serve under a woman here. Culturally, that's a huge taboo here. We're going to talk about that a little bit down the line here. But, you know, just for him to submit himself to a woman was a lot to ask of a warrior. It's quiet now. All the ladies are glaring at me. Look, I report, you decide. I'm just telling you what's here. Great humility in Barak, great integrity in Deborah, amazing confidence in this woman of God. She's, she's amazing. Uh, verse 10, Deborah and Barak and their smallish 10,000-person army with no heavy cavalry, with no armor, with no chariots, just from two small tribes, heads into battle. I mean, think about here. This is not, this is not shaping up to be a fair fight at all. Uh, you know, it's just these two tribes here that they're forming together, and they got this small little army, and they head off into battle. You say, what's with that? This is the perfect size group for God to get all the glory. Remember, God didn't want Israel to get excited about themselves, didn't want them to get a big head, didn't want to think that they could bring deliverance to themselves by their own hand. He always wanted it to be obvious that God fought for them, whether it was leveling the walls of Jericho or it is here up against this huge force, whether it was Gideon. Gideon takes 300 men against a massive Midianite army with horns and pitchers. You remember all that? God always likes to stack the odds in the enemy's favor and then destroy the enemy. So the glory goes to God. Now, verse 11 introduces another character here. Uh, he's a character, but he has bad character. His name is Heber. And Heber was a Kenite, and he was a relative of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. So he has some ties to Israel. The Kenites uh, were linked to Israel. They served uh, with the you know, people of God here. But Herber, he decides he's going to do what's best for Herber. You ever know, you know, you know some people who like to do what's best for themselves? Well, that's Herber. Herber's this opportunist. He's a little bit sneaky and underhanded. It says Herber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites. So he abandons his own people and from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, 
and pitched his tent as far away from the oak of Zanamin, which is near Kadesh. So what Herbert does is he decides he's going to betray the people of God because he don't think they're going to win because in the natural, it looks like they're going to get squashed. So he decides to do what's best for himself. He's shrewd, he's an opportunist, and he's doing what he thinks is best for Heber, but it's not going to work out for him. So uh, verses 12 through 13, he decides to tip off Sisera. So he turns on on the people of God and he goes to the enemy and he tells them that Deborah and Barak have massed an army to fight them. And Sisera uses this information he gets from him to mobilize his own troops. So now the element of surprise is gone. So it's not bad enough that you got this small force attacking a large force that's well-equipped. Now the element of surprise is gone. That's really the only thing they had going for them. And this guy, this weasel, he decides that, you know, he's going to take that away. He's going to garner some favor with the enemy here so that when the battle goes down the way he thinks it's going to go down, he's going to come out and he's going to survive and maybe he'll even maybe they'll even reward him and they'll give him this and X, Y, and Z. So he's looking out for himself. He, des- he decides to betray the people of God. Now I want to say something about betrayal. In life, if you haven't already, at some time you're going to experience betrayal. Most of us look like, you know, We've been through enough of life to experience betrayal on some level. Uh, All of us are going to, Jesus experienced betrayal. One of his 12, one of the 12 he selected, sold him for money, 30 pieces of silver. Betrayal is part of life. It's not something we can, you know, always avoid. Sometimes it's a small betrayal. Sometimes it's huge. Sometimes it's betrayal by those who are closest to us, and that's the betrayal that stings the most. God's people need to remember three things when they've been betrayed. Number one, our God is bigger than the self-serving games of people who would betray us. Our God is bigger. Well, you don't know, God. You don't know what they did to me. And they, 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 you know, they, they've destroyed everything, my integrity, my name, my future. Your God is bigger than someone who's corrupt who will betray you. So don't let the enemy convince you that your betrayer has dashed your future or your hopes or your dreams because the God you serve is bigger than anyone who can betray Our God is bigger than the impact of man's betrayal. Oh, it cost me my job. It cost me my name. It cost me, a, you know, my marriage. Betrayal just, you know, it stings and it hurts and it's ugly. And you might think, well, this person has ruined me. And there again... The God we serve is bigger than betrayal. You would think in this situation, man, now the element of surprise is gone. We were going to get crushed before. Now we're going to get pulverized. It's worse. You know, God, we're undone. (laughs) And God is in heaven go, you know what? I got you. Hang in there. And so understand that people who betray us, they're not bigger than God. They're corrupt. And I want to say something about the wicked who plot against the righteous. When the wicked plot against the righteous, they do it at their own peril. Unless you are as blind as a bat, in these days you can see everywhere in the nations, in the governments, in, 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 in the medical, everywhere you look, you see corruption, you see people being bought with money. I mean, unless, I don't know, you've been, you know, hiding in your closet for a year. 
corruption in every level, in every area, from our Supreme Court to our people in in the House and the Senate. I mean, corruption. And you think, wow, the wicked, man, they're getting over on us. They're, They're winning. They're winning every battle. Listen to me. The wicked persecute the righteous. The wicked do wickedness at their own peril. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He's laughing at all this. Why? Because their days are numbered. Everything that's done in secret will be brought out into the light. (laughs) The wicked won't get away with their wickedness forever. People betray you. People misuse you. People lie about you. People get you fired from your job. Listen to me. You're a child of the king. He's got your back. They might have a big army. They might have the media. They might have the government forces behind them. But God in heaven is bigger than all of that. Be encouraged, child of God. You see wickedness, don't despair. You see corruption, don't despair. God in heaven knows what's going on, and he will have the last laugh. Deborah and Barak have their little army. They meet Sisera in battle. Notice how the prophetess Deborah frames the situation here before they go into battle. She says this, I love it. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone before you. She she squarely says the battle is the Lord's. She squarely says that God is going to deliver this massive army into our little hands. Because why? The Lord has gone before you. In everything we do in life, We've got to make sure we are aligned with God and we are right with God so that God can go before us. If we have to go ourselves, I'm not sure how it's going to work out. But if God goes before us, it's going to work out beautifully, amen? And she, she frames it this way. She gives them, you know, courage in the moment of battle here, verse 15 and 16. God's hand is so evident and seen in the battle. It's just amazing. It doesn't work out on paper. It doesn't make sense in the natural, but God uses the weak things to crush the strong things, and he does it here. He uses this little small force to consume Sisera's huge army. His 900 chariots don't help him bogged down, whether there was mud or they got stuck or they took a wrong, they took a left at Albuquerque, I don't know, but God somehow canceled out the power of all these things. These guys are routed. They're chased down and killed with the sword. I want to say something. When judgment comes for the wicked, none of their material assets, none of their advantages, none of their preparations or their alliances will save them. It's a fearful thing for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God. Any Christians here? God's fighting for you. Oh, I'm exhausted, Pastor. I understand I'm exhausted too, but God's fighting for us. You know what? I've noticed that when I'm exhausted and at the end of myself and have no strength left in me, that's when God says, now let me do the work there, son. You, have you worn yourself out? Have you worried yourself out? Are you all set there, buddy? Okay? All right, watch this. And God comes in and does his thing, man. Come on. If you're worn out and you're weak and you're tired and you have no strength in the natural, praise God. God is about to have a suddenly moment in your life and break through for you, amen? Why? Because he was waiting for you to wear out. He was waiting for you to spin your wheels. He was waiting for you to get over-involved and put too much on your plates. (laughs) So he could show you that the battle is the Lord's. And he's all we need. And he shows it in this situation. He crushes these guys and... uh, 
it, it's, it's not even close. It's, it's a rout. I mean, they chase them all down, kill them with the sword. Now, Sisera, the leader of Jabin's army, doesn't go down with his ship like a man of integrity. You know, he is a coward. He's a weasel. He shows himself to be self-serving, and he abandons his men. As his army's getting crushed and routed, the battle turns. He runs away to try and save himself. The wicked have no integrity. Where does he go? He goes to Heber's house, the man who tipped him off about Israel's plan. He goes to a traitor of his own people. He goes to a guy that he made an unholy alliance with. He runs right to his house. In verse 18, when Sisera comes looking for help from Heber, he doesn't find him because Heber doesn't answer the door. His wife, Jael, answers the door. Now, Jael is not like Heber. She aligns herself with the God of Israel. She's not under her husband's thumb, nor does she agree with him to do his wicked bidding. She lets Sisera inside the house. And though she lets him inside, she's not on his side. I want to say something about that as far as it goes for discernment. Not everyone who smiles at you is your friend. Not everyone who's willing to help you has your best interest in mind. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, cast any shadow on JL here, she's about to do the righteous thing in a way. Um, but, you know, this guy, he trusts her and he's got his guard down and he is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Why is that? Because his eyes are blinded by his own wickedness. And he thinks this wicked man has a wicked wife that's going to help him out in his time of need. And it's a bad miscalculation. Verse 19 through 20, if you follow along, Sisera has no clue that Jael is setting him up for the Lord's judgment. He should have seen the red flags, but he didn't. He didn't pick up the cues, the body language. He, he just trusts her. He asks her for water, but notice, she doesn't give him water. She gives him milk. Now, they didn't have refrigerators back in the day, so the milk was warm. What do you take when you want to go to sleep? Hello, I want some cold water. Here's some milk and cookies there, buddy. Lay down on your little blankie here. Have your milk and cookies. Was it a rough battle today? You take a little nap. JL's got your back. I'll watch the door. <laughs> so she gives him his milk. He drinks it. He falls asleep into a deep sleep. Uh, and, you know, she takes a tent peg and hammer and puts it to his temple and hammers it through his head into the floor and pins him to the ground. Some people's kids. <laughs> Verse 21 of Judges 4 here are the most unnecessary words in the Old Testament. And so he died. <laughs> yeah. He just got a tent peg pounded through his temples. She pinned him to the ground, and so he died. Well, thanks for clearing that up for us, Lord. Jael doesn't honor her husband's unholy alliance against Israel. Instead, she double-crosses the Canaanites and sides with the Lord. She executes God's judgment in such a powerful way, in such a graphic way, man. I mean, you know, be civilized. Shoot the guy with something. Hit him. No. Ping, ping. It didn't go through in one. Tough lady. Deborah said the honor would bypass Barak 
and go to a woman. And it does bypass Barak. It goes to this woman, Jael. It also, in a way, bypasses Deborah. The, 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 the victor here, the one who strikes the death blow to the enemy, is a woman named Jael. Now, Jael shows Barak uh, her handiwork and invites him inside when he comes looking for Sisera, and he's pegged to the ground there, and she's like, pegged him, and he's like, good, good job. Verse 23 and 24, this is a huge defeat for Jabin. Now, notice Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, is not there. He's got his man Sisera out there. But Jabin suffers this huge loss. Sisera is killed. His army is destroyed. His 900 chariots are gone. He's no longer a regional superpower in the area. And from that moment forward, he declines until his... his kingship fades away. Verse 24 says, the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of the Canaanites, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So it was a progressive removal of Jabin. I'm not sure why God did that that way. On Sunday, we're talking about instant miracles and progressive miracles. Sometimes God does things instantly. Sometimes he does them incrementally. In this case, they slowly pushed Jabin out. Maybe it would have created too much of a power vacuum in the area and allowed other kingdoms to unite. We don't know. I don't know. But God knows why he did it that way. The conclusion is this here. How did Barak, the, the, the second string helper in the book of Judges under Deborah, how did he get into the hall of fame of faith and not even Deborah or Jael? The conclusion is Barak shows that he's willing to be part of a team and he doesn't have to be up front and take all the glory. God looked at that, the, the humble heart of this man who was a mighty warrior, and he counted it as faith to him. Barak shows great humility in his willingness to do his duty without getting any of the credit for it. You see, that? that's what God is looking for in us, that we're willing to do what we're called to do without, you know, getting all the credit for it, without posting 58 pictures on social media, without, you know, uh, sending out, you know, a look at me and I'm doing X, Y, and Z for that. No, that's not the heart that God's after because that, that's, that's someone who wants the glory for themselves. Now, strangely enough, Barak agreed not to get any of the glory, but he's the only one who gets in the Hall of Fame of Faith. So God exalted him because he was willing to humble himself. And that's what we got to learn. You lift yourself up, you exalt yourself, you puff yourself up, you talk about your achievements, you have your reward. You honor God and serve God in silence and humility, and God will exalt you in due season. Amen. Barak caught the attention of God. Barak did what God had asked him to do. God counted it to him as faith. He was willing to work as a team. He was willing to serve this woman in a culture. Notice, you know, why did God use the prophet Deborah on the battlefield to the Canaanites? Because God knew that that was a slap in the face to them culturally, that they got beat by a girl. Awesome. God knows how to humiliate the wicked when they won't repent. So see the faith in Barak here and understand uh, what got him in the Hall of Fame. And in, in our own lives, would we be willing to be part of the team and not a, a glory hog? Would we be willing to go unnoticed and not get the credit just so we can please God? Would we be willing to serve others that maybe society says, are less than us, and we, you know, we shouldn't have to, and it's, it's humiliating. Would we be willing to humble ourselves to please God? If we are, 
he'll count it as great faith for us. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. I preached it to the best of my ability, and I thank you that you've done the other 99%, and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to get it into our hearts. Father, I pray tonight that whether we see ourselves as prophets, priests, kings, warriors, servants, specialists, whatever we see ourselves as, we would be willing to lay that all aside and humble ourselves, that we'd be able to, to do whatever you require of us, even if we don't get the credit for it. God, think what we could do as a church if we didn't care who got the credit. We just wanted to serve God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, work that in me as a leader. Work that into Full Gospel Center. Work that into this body that we would serve and work hard and fight the battles that need to be fought and stand in the gap as the Lord directs us. And we would see the hand of God deliver us from the wickedness of this generation in such a way that Jesus is exalted. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.